Blog Talk Radio. Morning, this is Get Your Kids Back Now. This show is dedicated to keeping families together and to fighting the tyranny of CPS and DCFS social workers. The secondary purpose of the show is to educate parents and relatives or to at least show them where to get the necessary information for their fight. Good morning, this is Attorney Vince Davis, and it's Saturday morning, and we're going to be having a, uh, I plan on having a good show this morning. We're going to talk about um, the six-month review hearing. I'm going to tell you a couple stories, I'm going to take a couple calls, and then at 8.30, um, probably one of the best attorneys that I know is calling in and going to be interviewed, and we're going to be talking about juvenile dependency cases, CPS cases, uh, juvenile uh, dependency cases, uh, and appeals and writs. I don't know if the listeners know, but writs and appeals can be a large part of and an important part of any CPS case, and we're going to be talking to someone that's an expert not only in the trial courts, but also an expert um, in doing writs and appeals in CPS cases. The first thing I want to discuss, I want to discuss a a CPS case um, that we're, my office is doing, and it's uh, it's in the federal court. Uh, it's in the U.S. District Court system, and we are actually suing uh, DCFS uh, for uh, the family uh, because of things that happened during the CPS case or the DCF case in uh, Monterey Park. Um, We recently went to a mediation that was court-ordered by the judge um, in the uh, juvenile court, excuse me, in the federal court. And the case was not settled at this settlement conference. Um, Of course, uh, DCFS wanted to play, um, or or is playing hardball, as they usually do in their, they have their own playbook to handle these cases. But I I was um, amazed at the lack of credibility they give to the client, to the mother in this case. Um, I think deep down inside they know that um, uh, something was done wrong to this mother and uh, that she deserves compensation for the violation of her civil rights. And uh, But they're just playing hardball and trying to give her pennies on the dollar for a settlement. And luckily for us, our client uh, stood fast and basically told us that if they're not going to settle the case for what's what we consider to be a reasonable amount of money, we're going to take this case to trial. And we're going to be in trial probably, I think the trial date is sometime in October 2018, so just a couple of months from now. So stay tuned. Um, I will keep you posted on what happens with that case and that trial. The next thing I want to mention to you is um, we had a meeting in my office recently 
and we were discussing uh, the people that we are going to focus on representing coming um, you know within the next 12 months in the past we focus primarily on relatives and parents in suing DCFS for civil rights violations and suing other county agencies around the state um, for civil rights violations. Um, but we're going to turn our um, focus, we'll still be doing that, but we're going to turn our focus to representing current and past foster children um, who were abused and or neglected inside the foster care system. I am meeting so many people and so many people are calling me saying, hey, I was a foster child and this is what happened to me while I was in foster care. The stories are borderline nightmarish, if not nightmarish. Um, these children in a lot of cases, first let me say this, are there good foster parents? Yes, there are. Are there good social workers? Yes, there are. But mixed in with that, we have problems. We have problems with social workers, problems with foster parents. I just met with a young man yesterday who is no longer in the foster care system, and he filed his own lawsuit and he's having trouble right now with the lawsuit and he asked me to take over the lawsuit but this young man is, was placed in foster care in uh, San Bernardino County and the things that happened to him in foster care um, I would describe as criminal and um, he he's the only one of his siblings that filed a lawsuit and um, the first thing I told him is, well, yes, I'm interested in taking over your case. And next thing I told him was, you know, please have your brothers and sisters contact me because they have all aged out. In other words, they have all been turned 18 and they've been released from foster care and um, they're trying to live on their own. And what happens in a lot of cases is, you know, these foster kids who are um, were taken from their families, are abruptly uh, exited out of foster care at the age of 18. And a lot of times they don't have skills, they don't have the education to take care of themselves, and a lot of them are homeless or couch surfing. Uh, the young man that I met with yesterday, he's couch surfing, and you know he's going from friend's couch to relative's couch to friend's couch. And um, just a few months ago, uh, maybe a year ago, he was in foster care, um, you know, being uh, mistreated in his foster home. So if you or anyone you know knows someone that was in the foster care system, please have them contact me at 888-888-6582. Um, they may have remedies that they can pursue in court. Um, a few weeks ago I was interviewed, I won't mention the show, um, I was interviewed uh, on a radio show and the host was a, um, a woman uh, host and we were talking about legal things in general, just in general and people were calling and asking me questions, you know, about um, 
drunk driving, uh, rental question, you know, landlord tenant questions, you know, just everything. And during the break, um, I found out that the host of the show was in foster care and was um, herself had some uh, not so nice experiences in foster care and she was in foster care in another state. It wasn't California, it wasn't Los Angeles County. It was a state back east. And um, But I hear these stories all the time about, you know, um, foster kids having uh, a bad time in foster care. We just started um, uh, advertising on a station, radio station in Los Angeles. Uh, the station is KJLH, and um, the DJ at that station uh, spoke regularly. I had known this before, but he spoke regularly, and he made a commercial for us about uh, his experiences in uh, foster care. Uh, and his name is Donna Michi, and his experiences, he talks about it often, so it's not confidential, um, but he was a foster uh, foster care child. So as as our the history of our country goes on and on, more and more foster children, more and more children are going into the foster care system. It seems like it's a growing system and more and more um, things are happening to children in foster care. And unfortunately, there are not a lot of attorneys out there that uh, protect or protect the legal rights of foster children after they get out of the system. Right now, I'm going to take a quick call, and then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to talk about uh, doing your six-month review hearing. So the first call I'm going to take is from area code 909, ending in 79. Okay. Good morning. Did you, did you have a story to tell or a question to ask? Yes, good morning. Good morning. Did you have a story to tell or a question to ask? Um, uh, kind of both. Go ahead. Okay, so um, my, oh, I don't even know where to start. So it started July 1st, and um, I was at work. I was on my way home. My kids were with my husband. My mom and my older 18-year-old daughter were home as well. And um, my son, um, he was playing around, messing around, running in and out. So my husband tells him he was going to be in trouble. So he runs through the living room, through the kitchen, up his top bunk bed, and he's, like, scrambling around. My husband grabs him. He falls face, face plants on his, on his nose. Get home. Well, my husband calls me. He's like, Jet got hurt, you know. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't even know if I should be saying names. Okay, so then um, I was like, okay, I didn't hear any crying or anything. But my son is very active and very – just jumps off the tables. And, you know, he's a kid, very, very active. And um, so I didn't hear any crying, so I thought, no big deal, you know. Um, I'm going to come in right now. So then I get there, and I see an ice pack on his face. And he's not crying. He just has an ice pack. So I'm thinking, like, okay, you know, you're fine. 
and he was he looks at me and I'm like, okay, you know, he's not crying. So I take a few minutes, take because I just got home from work, take my um sweater off, whatever. So I go back to the living room and he takes the takes the ice pack off his face. So I'm like, oh my goodness, we have to go to the hospital. I was like, what the heck happened? So they tell me what happened, and I'm like, okay, let's go to urgent care. Go to urgent care. Um, the RN saw us, and he was kind of like, well, he asked us what happened. We told him. My husband's standing right there, and he's looking at him. He's like, was it an accident? My husband's like, yeah, it was an accident. So then he put us in the room. Doctor didn't even come out to see us. Nurse came back in and told us, well, you guys have to go to the emergency so we went to the emergency, talked to them, were there a few, a little bit. They finally took him in, um, talked to the nurse, talked to the doctor. We were there, told him exactly what happened. Um, he had to get stitches under his nose. Um, we were there for, actually, it was a long time because he couldn't take the pain of the um, needle. So they actually had to put him, they had to sedate him. So um, it was already like 1 in the morning. And we're there, and an officer walks in, and he's um, he asks if somebody was in bed too, and the doctor was like, "No, who are you looking for? I wasn't even aware that you know you guys were coming out." He says my son's name, so of course I'm like, "That's us." So he wants to question my husband, so he questions him. Um, a social worker came as well, questions him, then um, questions me, and then. Um, they wanted to know if they can go to my house and um, talk to my kids. So I told them, sure, you know. So they went to my house, and then, of course, I stayed at the hospital with my son. My husband was there as well. So about maybe an hour later, the officer comes back. He arrests my husband, takes him into custody. Um, I'm there. I'm the only one. They tell me I'm the only one that can be with my son. My mother couldn't go in. His brother's sisters could not go in. So we were there for good, that happened Sunday. We were there till Monday night. Um, later on that day, the social worker came back and told me that um, being that it was a misfortunate accident that my child had to be placed. So, of course, I'm freaking out. Um, you know, what exactly does that mean? She tells me I need to give her relatives names. If not, he's going to be put into foster care. So, of course, I'm like, okay, this is like 4 or 5 in the morning. I'm on my phone looking up, you know, people's name. I did ask, first of all, can he be put with my mother? She said no because we all have the same address. So I was like, okay. So um, I get in touch with my cousin. Of course, um, I gave the social worker all her information, but it, that took a long – it took like almost 24 hours. They had to um, – go to her house, they had to take all her, her and her husband's information, so they did not want to release my son, um, they had to keep him there, and then there was security there, um, watching him and I the whole time, um, they did a bunch of our x-rays on him, um, so what happened is he had a nose fracture, and he had to get some stitches. But all the other x-rays came out fine, no head trauma, no broken bones, no, well, besides his nose fracture. So um, that next Wednesday, or that Tuesday night, almost Wednesday morning, social worker comes back and tells me my cousin was approved. So she lets me take him down to her car, and I had everything ready. I had a bag ready for him, his medicine, everything. So she takes him, and I had a court hearing that Friday. 
So, of course, I go, I got my own personal lawyer, but my husband has a public defender. So that Friday when we went to court, my lawyer asked her, asked the judge if I could have um, visitations, if we could both have visitations. The judge said yes. And so um, that next Monday we were to go back to court, and my son was given back to me under the, as long as my husband moved out of the house, which if that's what he had to do, we're going to do that as, as long as my kids come back to me. So my husband had to move out of the house, and then they opened up um, two other cases on my two other sons. And But they it, that took a few days, and the reason why the social workers told me she had to do that was because her supervision went over the report, and they were kind of like, well, if there's two other minors there, we can't just do it on one minor. We have to do it on all of them. So um, all, the, my, all my kids, they're with me because my husband's out of the house. Um, so we just went to court, and he does have visitations as well, um, but they have to be supervised. Um, we went to court this past Thursday, and basically um, what they were trying – my husband's public defender was wanting him to admit to the allegations, which we know my son was hurt, but it wasn't malicious. It was an accident. So my husband said he was not going to admit to that. So they said we were going to take it to trial. So we go to trial on July 28th. Um, so that's basically where I'm at right now. Um so my well, you question, go to trial on, go to, I mean, not July, I'm sorry, you August trial on, Okay, okay, go ahead. August so your 20th, question yeah. is? So my question is, um, so my husband, I don't, I, I'm, I'm, this is where I'm confused because he also has, now he has the, well, he, okay, because I know that, Juvenile court is different from his because he got arrested. So he he also has to go to court for that on in September. So if he gets his own lawyer, because like I said, he has a public defender, he they're telling me that when he goes to court in September for the criminal charge, that's like something totally different. So what type of lawyer does he need to get? Okay, so that's a very good question, by the way. So in the criminal case, that takes place in a criminal courtroom in a um, courthouse separate from the juvenile case. Right. And the district attorney is going to be trying to prosecute him for a violation of probably something under the penal code, and, you know, he'll be facing jail time. So he will need a criminal defense attorney to uh, represent him there. Um, if you want to find a criminal defense attorney, you can Google it for your area, and or you can take the public defender who they will assign to him if he can't afford to hire an attorney. Um, Everybody knows what happens with public defenders. <laughs> Yeah, I was just about to say I have nothing against public defenders, but I would suggest you get a experienced, very good uh, criminal attorney who has experience in these child abuse cases. Now, going back to his other case, um, 
it's a juvenile dependency case, and from your area code, I'm guessing that your case is in San Bernardino County? Yes. Okay, so you're going to the court over on Gilbert. So exactly. If he, if his attorney has asked him to plead no contest or recommended that, your husband may want to get another attorney, a private attorney, to represent him in that case because um, it doesn't sound like the juvenile uh, attorney is either on board with your husband, believes your husband, or maybe doesn't care what happens to your husband because if your husband has told that attorney, hey, it was an accident, you know, even the kid will tell you or testify to that, you know, um, right. he may not have the right attorney. Um, right. I'm not... I'm not saying that's, you know, 100% definite, but that's what it sounds like to me from what you're telling me. Um, right. And the trial, that's coming, the trial that's coming up in that court is going to be a very important trial with respect to your husband's rights as to his children or these children going into the future. I don't, exactly. I didn't, I didn't ask you, I didn't ask you this, but you may or may not know this, but are they um, alleging uh, a subdivision E or a subdivision I against your husband? I'm not sure. I mean, I have all his paperwork, but I'm not sure exactly what that is. But um, one other thing I wanted to mention was that, um, so when we went to court this Thursday, everybody agreed for my husband to come home, even the caseworker. She even had a, what is it called, like a case plan ready for us. But as soon as he told his lawyer he didn't agree with it, everything kind of like went out the window. Right, because they were um, trying to force him to yeah, agree to something that he so. didn't do just so he could go home. Yes, and that's how we felt. And we're like, and that's what he said. He's like, I'm not yeah. going to do that. As much as he wants to come home, but he feels like he does not, he doesn't want to do that because it's not how it happened, you know? How old is your son, the one that was injured? My son, just he just turned seven. He was um, six when it happened. It just happened this okay, July. So, he, he, it, uh-huh. so he, could t- he could tell people what happened? Yes. He's, he's old enough to be brought in. So uh-huh. one of the things that you and your husband's attorney have to make sure that he's listed, um, you know, on the witness lists and that he comes in and he testifies as to what happened on that date. See, when the social worker is trying, trying, trying to make it appear as if your husband did something to the kid. And that's not what happened right. at all. And I'm, you um, know, and, I guess uh-huh. I'm not... I guess I'm not shocked, but I was going to say I'm shocked that they're prosecuting him over this in the criminal court. Um, but, you know, sometimes I get the feeling that some counties like San Bernardino, you know, go over the top on these things. And I don't know why. The only thing I can think of, you know, and it's speculation on my part, is money. You know, they're prosecuting these these people on these, um, you know, BS cases, um, right. you know, to get federal money. But I don't know. I'm just speculating. Go ahead. Right, I, right, I interrupt right. you. Um, the, um, oh, so when we go on the 28th, the judge had mentioned 
Um, she's like, okay, um, the younger one does not have to be here. None of the kids have to testify, but the two older ones, which are 13 and 15, she said they don't have to be here, but if they want to, they can come in. Okay, so let me stop you right there. Your kids have the right to be in court. Right. Okay. No matter what the age. Okay. But particularly if they're over 12. But your six-year-old has the right to be in court. And by the way, the only way your husband's going to win is if the six-year-old's in court, on the stand, testifying to the judge, telling the judge what happened in this case. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so if somebody is okay. telling you, don't bring the child, you know, that was injured... Um, you guys better talk to your lawyer and make okay. sure that um, the judge was not prohibiting you from bringing the six-year-old in to testify. So talk to your lawyers. But, you know, I, I get that all the time, all over the state of California. Hey, we really don't make minors testify. And I'm right. thinking, what are you talking? You know, they were the alleged victim. What are you talking about? I remember, and this is a true story. This happened maybe two or three months ago. I'm in Ventura County, and Ventura County is a small county. They have one juvenile dependency court. And, I, and we're going to trial on this case, and I tell everyone I want to have the minors testify. I think they're going to be okay. favorable witnesses for my client. You know what the minors attorney told me? What? Mr. Davis, Mr. Davis we don't do that in this county. And I was a little shocked, but not really. And I said, well, we're going to do it on this case. And there were three minors attorney. I had to get into a discussion on the record with the attorneys, with the judge. And, uh, you know, out of three children that I wanted to call as witnesses, the judge would only permit me to call two. Okay. Oh, my goodness. So, so, you, so you better make sure with your attorneys that you can call that child as a witness or else okay. your husband's going to lose. And and then likely they'll punish him because he didn't take the deal they offered him. Right. And that and the kid's lawyer, she was the one that was against it. And she told my kids, she took them, she talked to them, and she told them, I know you guys are going to be disappointed, but I don't feel as though the younger one is safe. So that's why she was against dad coming home. Right. So now, I couldn't understand why the judge couldn't, like, overrule that. Oh, good question. At this stage of the case, without hearing evidence, the judge cannot overrule that. Okay. Okay. And the minor's attorney at this stage of the case has a lot of power. Okay. And what happen and what's happening is that minors attorneys this is just my personal opinion. And many years ago, under a different system, I was a minors attorney. But I was one of those guys who was like trying to get kids back together with families, no matter right. what. But what I get the feeling now these days, that was, you know, twenty years ago. But what I'm happening what's feeling what's happening now is 
I get the feeling that minors' attorneys are worried that if they send the kid home and something happens again, that they're going to get sued. Yeah, I, no, I understand that. I can see. Yeah. So that's the only especially thing I can with. Think of. Yes. But anyway, <sighs> so you you got to go to trial, and you got to make sure you have your witnesses, your exhibits, and everything lined up. And no matter what they say, you know, because a lot of judges will tell you, oh, I, I'd rather not hear from the minors. Why don't you guys uh, stipulate in writing what the minors would say? That's and that's another a, you know what, that's like exactly what she said. She was like, you know what, they don't have to testify. That's a good, she told me. She was like, and that's a good thing. Uh, well, I mean, she's the judge, but, you know. Right. Um, I'm just a fan of live testimony. Because when you mm-hmm. submit something to a judge that's on a piece of paper, she doesn't get to see the kid, how the kid testifies. She doesn't right. get to see the child's demeanor, the expressions, the, the you know. They say that communication between human beings is 85% nonverbal. So, you know, you, your subconscious is picking up, and your conscious mind is picking up all of these signals from the body language, the facial expressions, the twitch of the eye, the twitch mm-hmm. of the nose, the twitch of the mouth, the, t- the sound of how someone says something, the, the, the inflections, the continents and everything. You know, all of that adds up in our brains and that's how most people communicate 85% of the time. It's not the words that we say. It's how we say it and how the listener Here's it. Got it. And if you write, if you write it down on a piece, if we write down what the kid's going to say on a piece of paper, the judge is not going to be, um, not going to see that. So I tell, I, I tell that to people all the time, and they, they look at me like I'm crazy. Yeah. No, but, I, I totally you know, just, get it. I'm just trying to defend my client. Right. So make sure that you guys, and I don't know which judge you have. There's only two female judges in San Bernardino. Yeah, and I don't her know name's Erin. Okay, so you're in Department 7. Yes. Okay. I My impression of that judge is that she's a, she's a very fair judge. You know, I'd say a little tilting, just a little... Uh, conservative, you know, she wants to be careful that she doesn't make the wrong decision and send a kid home to an abusive situation, which any judge right. would do. But I've always gotten the impression um, that she is, she tries to be very fair about you know, yeah, the situation. Yeah, and also something so that was very, very nice about her uh, is because um, she asked, because um, my kids were all there this Thursday, and that was the first day of school, and she was like, when's the first day of school? I was like, it was today. She says, okay, well, since Dad is not going home, he can um, go to any school functions, back to school night, any sports, anything that has to do with school, he can go. So which she didn't have to do that. I was really, I appreciated that she did that. So along with his two-day visits, or not two-day, but two days a week visits, two hours a day, she also included that. So I thought that was very nice of her, or very fair, I should say. Yes, yes, yes. She's, um, I get the feeling she's very, 
or tries to be very family oriented in a system, uh, you know, in a CPS system that's, in my opinion, the exact opposite. So it's good, right. good, you know, you have a good shot with that judge. All right. So that's just basically it, right? He's just going to have to get another attorney. Um, he'd probably have to get, unless the attorney does juvenile and criminal defense, he might have to Are get Are there to any it. that do that? Or do you well, know of any who do criminal and juvenile? Now that you ask, now that you ask, we do. Oh, do you guys really? I thought you yeah. just did the juvenile. No. You know, a lot of people think that, and I, you know, and maybe that's my fault because I don't tell people, I don't really market it. Um, so, you know, at our firm, I think we have 13 or 14 attorneys, including me, and only about six of us do juvenile dependency, CPS cases. Uh-huh. The others do a variety of different things. Um, I have two very experienced criminal defense attorneys in my office, and I also do criminal defense. Uh, one of them worked for the district attorney's office in Pennsylvania for, I think, the 18 or 19 years. She was like a head supervisor doing big, you know, I think she was doing murder cases, you know, when you mm-hmm. get to that level. You're, you're right. very, very experienced uh, criminal attorney. And any of the heavy-duty criminal cases that we get in our office, you know, she's all she works on them all the time. And that's one thing my husband's like, I cannot have that on my record. Like, are you, are you kidding right. me? Because they put it under child right. cruelty. Right. Like, what right. the hell? And I, our kids, they're from 18 years old to 7 years old, and none of them have ever, ever been hurt by him. Ever. Child cruelty conviction is just right under sexual registration, you know, sexual Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, I didn't even tell you that. When they arrested him, so they arrested him, they took him to the jail, they put him in a gang unit, okay? He has no, he has tattoos, but none of his tattoos are gang affiliated. Put him in a gang unit, the whole unit attacked him. He had to go to the hospital. Um, when he gets back to the jail, the same put him in that unit is telling him, well, we're going to put you back in there. You're going back in there. He's like, no, I'm not. I almost got killed in there. Well, a nurse overheard what was going on, thank God, and was like, no, you're not going to go back in that unit. It was it was those, oh, my gosh, I can't even describe how it was just horrible. The whole situation, my and then my husband's calling me, telling me to bail him out, but I'm not going to leave my son because I'm the only one that's allowed there with him at the hospital, you know. So, of course, my son's going to come first. I was like, Joe, I will, as soon as, you know, they release Jet to Sophia, which is my cousin who they placed him with for five days, I was like, then I'll, I'll, I, I can go help you. But it was just, it was just, it was, everything about this whole situation was a nightmare, is a nightmare. I mean, it's getting better and better. I can see, like, the light but it's still bad, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah, that was another thing that happened with, when they took him in. So, all righty. Well, so uh, what is a number but, I can get in contact? Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, you can call my 
you can call my office later today after, let's say, 10 o'clock. Um, the reception okay. should be there. It's 888-888-6582. Yeah. And when you call, make sure you ask to speak to me. Okay. Because if you don't ask to speak to me personally, somebody else will talk to you. Got it. And, and tell you me your whole name. Attorney Vince Davis. Vince Vincent Davis. Davis. Okay. And should I tell her I spoke to you this morning? Yes, tell her that you spoke to me on the radio and that I said for you to call in and ask for me personally. And okay. if I'm, I, I should be there, but if I'm not there, they'll take your name and number, and I'll call you right back today. Got it. But do you need to know my name right now? <laughs> I'm like, am I being recorded no, on the no, radio? No. Okay. No. Okay. It is. It is recorded. We do transcribe. I the mean, show, I don't. I don't no, have don't, anything to hide. But me. no, no, we don't use names. Okay. Oh, that's right. Okay. We don't use names. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for calling in. I look forward to speaking with you. Thanks. Talk to you later. Bye. Okay. Now, that's that's the typical case, um, you know, how people get involved in these things. Now, I'm not, you know, somebody said, well, are you saying child abuse never happens? No, I'm not saying that. No, I'm not saying that. But in cases like this, assuming that, you know, her husband and the kid are telling the truth, this was an accident. The guy is being prosecuted but criminally. They want to put him in jail. He was in jail. Got beat up in jail. And they're trying to keep him away from his family. The next call that I'm going to take is from an attorney who I work with and who I admire. She is a very good trial attorney. Um, she represents people and relatives in uh, juvenile dependency courts. She represents foster parents in administrative proceedings. And she's one of the best appellate attorneys in juvenile cases, in juvenile courts, um, Appeals in what they call writs, emergency appeals, are, are or can be a large part and an important part of a lot of DCFS or CPS cases. Her name is Stephanie Marie Davis. Stephanie, are you there? I am. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Did you hear the part where I said you're one of the best attorneys I know? I did, and I'm really glad that this program is recorded because I'm going to get a copy of the transcript. <laughs> For all of you that um, are listening, I want to tell you something. I should, there's a disclosure. Many, many, many years ago, Stephanie and I were married, and the name of the law firm was Davis and Davis. Subsequently, we got divorced, kept the law firm going, and then she left the law firm. And when did you come back? How many years ago? Uh, 2013. 
So five years ago, she came back and has been working with us again. But we kept the name of the law firm law offices of Vincent Davis. And um, she is using her talents in the juvenile arena, uh, both delinquency and um, dependency. You know, I, I think I read a, a, a report, uh, office report. You made a juvenile delinquency appearance recently, didn't you? I did, yes, yes. What what courthouse was that? Was that? It was in Eastlake, but it was yes, it was in Eastlake, but it actually was uh, a pre-filing uh, hearing. The um, young youth was uh, given the opportunity to um, be part of what's called the JOIN program. It's an acronym, J-O-I-N, and it's sponsored by the DA's office. They uh, interview certain um, youth who have been uh, given a citation because they've committed a crime and they've been cited to one of the various delinquency courts. And they have a meeting and uh, decide and discuss with whether they're an appropriate candidate for the joint program. So we were successfully able to get him into the joint program so that he will have the opportunity uh, to say he didn't have a juvenile record or a juvenile case. Oh, that's great for him. When you, when you do this, are you working with a juvenile delinquency judge? No, not for the joint program. No, because the joint program is is strictly with the DA's office. So the the DA has what's called a hearing officer, who is someone who works for the DA's office, and you discuss the terms and conditions of the program and negotiate the the details of it with that person. I see. I see. Okay. Well, getting back to CPS cases. Tell us about a case that you uh, have done recently where you were successful and we don't use names. Um, you know, I actually would, if it's okay, like to talk about the referral matters that I handle because I, I think if your audience knew that they could have representation at the very beginning of a, a CPS or DCFS uh, investigation, I think that would benefit them because I truly believe that more positive results happen when they're represented at the beginning of, of the whole process. Okay. And just so the audience will know, before a juvenile court case is filed at Monterey Park or at your local county juvenile court, there's this whole CPS, DCFS investigation. And a lot of people don't know, as Stephanie just said, that you can have legal representation during this investigation um, to the surprise of many social workers who didn't realize you could have an attorney during this process. So, Stephanie, go ahead. Tell us about one of those cases. Okay. Uh, and and my I have a lot of success with um, getting the referrals closed and, the, and, them, and them never getting to court. But the way I have the best success is if the parent calls immediately upon getting a card in their 
door or a knock at their door from CPS. The earliest, earlier we can get to the case and into the case, the, the referral, the better, better it is. But um, so because usually I um, am, our instructions are not to talk to the social worker until a, a meeting is set up where I'm present, uh, the social worker's attorney is present, and the social worker and the parent. So um, if if I'm able to get um, start working on the case and that um, put the client through uh, what may seem like a rig- rigorous um, rehearsal or a- explanation of everything that's going to happen at the hearing at the meeting and explain to them all the questions they're going to be asked. I know uh, I get the answers from them, so I know what if there's going to be any issues or problems and um, how to guide them through the um, social worker interview. Because I know you know that when a case gets to the dependency court, we get the information about what happens at a referral. And all the, uh, nine times out of ten, the cases that go the wrong way, the person was not represented by an attorney, and they're saying all these uh, incriminating and not helpful things and, and things that are misinterpreted and misstated and misunderstood by the social worker. Uh, and they all get on a piece of paper, pieces of paper that go to the court, and the court reads it, and everybody reads it. So that's where the danger to me, that's where the danger lies in not being represented at a referral. Um, so I prepare um, my clients for those interviews. I and they answer the, uh, the I should say they answer the questions truthfully, um, and uh, provide the information. But there is such a thing as providing too much information and providing the information incorrectly. So um, I assist them with that. And we um, we go to the meeting. So, for an example, um, there I have had recent dom- a domestic violence referral. Um, so, I know how social work- workers think, um, and and I talk to the client and convince the client that at this point the appropriate step would be to get a restraining order against the person who uh, committed domestic violence against the client. So they go and do that um, with my, with my assistance uh, in preparing the, the paperwork. And then, uh, so by the time we come to the interview, my client already has a restraining order in process or in another situation has a date for a restraining order hearing. So the social worker sees that, yes, there was this situation of domestic violence. However, my client is being proactive and protecting herself and the children. So that goes a long way in steering them away from getting into get, wanting to take the case to court. I also put have the client uh, set up... Um, counseling for themselves. We talk about what kind of counseling is appropriate. Um, sometimes clients are resistant about doing counseling, and I understand that, And I, but I talk to them 
and explain the uh, benefits and the reasons behind that because um, when we get these referral cases, my goal is to keep, I have two goals, to close the referral as quickly as possible and to keep the referral from becoming a court case. So um, I've been, if I am able to show the client in a proactive light, light, then um, it's very beneficial. The other thing um, that is beneficial is um, having the client come to recognize that there is this situation, whether it be domestic violence or um, drugs, that should be addressed, and, and I try to get them as early as I can to accept responsibility for their part in what, what has happened and why the referral came to be, and, um, and then moving forward, doing what they need to do to move forward to get past it. And have you had great success with that strategy? I actually have. I have not. I will say when someone has called us when they first get the um, first get the card or the knock at the door, and I'm assigned the case, that I have not had a case yet go to court. Wow, that's a better percentage than me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I do know that. I, I put I do put a lot of time and effort in in those referral cases um, because I really believe that that is a, a core, an important part of our of how we can help families. And if they just if people just knew like like I said, if they just knew they had the ability or, or the uh, right to um, hire an attorney for those things, I think they would have much better outcomes. Well, very good. Thank you for sharing that. Um, any uh, interesting appeals you're doing lately for the office? Um, I do have one uh, pending. I don't know what the outcome is going to be, but um, you were actually you actually did the uh, hearing itself uh, with a non-parent. It was a, a relative, and you had filed. Um, a 388 petition on the uh, grandparents' behalf uh, asking that the children lived with the grandparent at one point in time, not at the time that the case was um, was brought into uh, dependency court, but they did live with her and they spent a significant amount of time with her. Um, so you filed a 388, trying to get the um, trying to get the the grandparent to either get, uh, have the children placed with her, or to be able to have visitation with them because she was not allowed to have visitation either. I think that she and the the parents were um, feuding. So you the matter was set for a, hear, a hearing about whether or not there should be a 388 a, a, a hearing on the 388 and the court had was had been convinced by some other attorneys that were on the case that um she couldn't the judge couldn't set a 388 hearing because um they you, the client didn't have um didn't have standing uh and it didn't have an didn't have the right to have 
the hearing. So you argued that, and um, it, it was still denied. You, the, the grandparent never got the hearing. So it, we filed an appeal, and I wrote the appeal uh, arguing that, of course, everybody has the right to file a 388 petition, which is the law, and that um, she had she has the right to have a hearing. She didn't or to for the court to decide whether or not she should have a hearing. Um, court said it it didn't even have the um, the ability to make that decision or not. Uh, and so, uh, inter- the interesting part about it is when I filed my brief, um, the DCFS, which is the respondent. Uh, did not file an opposition brief. And nobody, meaning they didn't oppose what I was arguing. They did not oppose my argument. So, and neither did, uh, and the the child, the children were not given uh, counsel. Um, and they they were asked if the, if they were asked if they, the attorney was asked if they wanted counsel for the children and they declined to have them have counsel. So that meant to me that they weren't, nobody was going to be, didn't believe that it was necessary or correct for somebody to be filing a brief on behalf of the children. So nobody filed anything but me. (laughs) And so So I'm waiting, I'm now waiting for the court. Uh, You would think so. Um, I, I mean, I will say the Court of Appeal, when they read that, does have to independently review it um, whether or not someone files a brief or not. They still have to review and see if the arguments I made are legally correct and if they are, they are supported. But the, uh, the fact that um, they did not file an opposition, um, it, it, it speaks volumes at saying that they, they didn't have anything to disagree with about the law and the facts that I explained in the in the brief. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So we may have a winner there. Let's keep our fingers crossed. Yes. Well, Stephanie, I want to thank you for being on the show today and sharing those um, that information with respect to representation before a case starts and also the appeals. Thank you very much, and I will be asking you in the future to join us again. Okay. Uh, You're welcome. No problem. Thank you. Bye-bye. We have several calls in the queue, and we only have about five minutes left in the show. I'm going to try to take one more call. Area code 818, ending in 88. Hello. Good morning. You're on with Attorney Vincent Davis. Did you have a story to Hello. tell or a question, or a question yes. to ask? Yes, Mr. Vincent. Hello? Yes. Can you hear me, sir? Yes, sir. Loud and clear. Yeah, this, uh, this is Mr. Singh. I think I talked to you uh a couple of times, uh, sir, about okay, my case. Okay, we don't use Remember? names. Yeah, we oh. we don't use names. Okay, um, <clears throat> my child was detained second time unlawfully, and uh, I talked to your office, 
And uh, right now, she have a chronic disease. As I told you, she have a, a lupus, SLE. And because of delaying to get a medical treatment right now, her her hip, both hips get damaged. And uh, she need a replacement for her hip. And the, uh, the doctor in Stanford uh, say that it, it could be prevented uh, which, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, because of the delay of the getting her um, MRI report and uh, the excess amount of steroid caused the boat hip damage, you know. So now she needs uh, replacement and she is only 17 and a half years. She wanted to come back, uh, return to my care, but uh, they don't allow that. So uh, here I am uh, asking uh, your department to help me. Okay, I do remember talking to you about this. I want you to get a pen and a piece of paper because we're running out of time, but I'd like to speak to you about this a little later today if you can call me at my office. Do you have a pen and a piece of paper? Yes, certainly so. Okay, I want you to call this number, 888-888. Let me know when you're ready. Yeah. Okay, 888. Yes, then 888 again. So, 888-6582. So at about 9.30, call my office, make an appointment to speak with me today. Let the person who who answers the phone, let them know that you spoke to me on the radio and that I wanted to speak to you today, okay? Yeah, sure, Mr. Vincent. Thank you. God bless you, sir. Because we only have two minutes left in the show, and we can't get on to all of it. But I do want to talk to you today so that we don't delay any further in trying to get you some help, okay? Yes, definitely. Yes. All right. Sure. Thank you for calling. Thank you, sir. All right. Next week I'm going to be talking about... preparing for and defending your rights and at a what's called a six-month hearing. So there are several types of six-month hearings. There's the 366.21E, the 366.21F, and then the 364 hearing. I give you those numbers because between now and next Saturday, you might want to Google them and you can read them. So it would be Welfare and Institutions Code Section 366.21E, 366.21F, and 364. Um, Those are the first, the 6th and the 12-month hearing review dates. And those are the statutes that control um, how those hearings proceed. Every hearing is different in juvenile dependency court. There's different legal tests. There's different burdens of proof. And you you got to be keyed in to know how the case should proceed by way of the law. A lot of people that I talk to, and I've, I've made a YouTube video about this, about what is justice. Um, if you can, you know, if you have an extra five minutes, go on YouTube and, and look that up and watch this video. Because 
a lot of people think justice is what they believe justice is in their hearts based upon their experiences and their beliefs and what people tell them. And that's not justice at all. And if they keep believing that, they are going to be frustrated and believe that the system doesn't work. Uh, so take a look at that YouTube video. I'll see everyone next week on the radio, and we'll talk about the six-month hearings. Bye-bye.